0: Happy New Year. This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the bowtie bandit of blood uh, transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Ann Moyer, a molecular genetic pathologist at Mayo Clinic in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Moyer. Thanks for having me on the program. So the title of this one is uh, New Year, New You, Same Genes. Um, and to kick us off, you know, when is a genetic test useful?
1: Well, there's actually a number of different times that a genetic test can be really useful for a patient. So I really like to break it down into three categories. So the first one being germline genetic testing. Mm-hmm. So that's usually a patient has an inherited disease and you want to be able to diagnose that. And then once you have the results of that variant that the patient has, you can test the other family members so that you know the predictive um, chances of someone else getting the same disorder. And also it might inform treatment of those patients. And then the second category would be patients that have tumors. So a lot of times mm-hmm. there are pr- targeted therapies for that very specific mutation that a patient might have in their tumor. And so that's good to be able to identify that so you can get the patient on the right therapy. And really, the third main category I would think of is pharmacogenomic testing. So some patients either don't respond well to a medication or might develop toxicity from that medication. And some of that can be predicted by genetic testing.
0: Wow. I mean, so the first one talking about genetic uh, um, mutations, I mean, that's something that, you know, I went through medical school. I know all of us went through learning that stuff. But the, the latter two, when we're talking about tumor, I, I remember that really kind of coming up during my residency training. We started talking about that. And then pharmacogenomics, I mean, was really something that birthed in more recent years, at least uh, as this uh, bloody banker <laughs> remembers it. Uh, as this is just exploding and just seems like there's just more more areas being added to where uh, genetic testing can be helpful uh, how about we flip it around and, and when is it not helpful
1: yeah I think everyone's really excited about genetic testing and we start thinking oh it's going to be the answer for everything but there are still circumstances where it's not as helpful so depending on what the specific clinical question is a genetic test might not be appropriate so I'd say one of the main categories for that would be if you've got a healthy patient then it's a little bit harder because some of the testing can be predictive of diseases that they might be able to get, but some of it is not quite as predictive at this point in time. Or if they know that they have a family history of a specific disease, we would really recommend testing the person that actually has the disease first so that you know what you're looking for in the healthy individuals. And then in other cases, there are tumors where we really just don't have a directed therapy yet at this point in time, so it's probably not quite as useful, although maybe it would help predict what clinical trials might be. Potentially useful in the future, and then in pharmacogenomics. There's just some drugs that we really can't predict at this point in time. Could we
0: unpack that a little bit? When you're talking about there's some drugs we just can't really predict now. Like uh, you know, when is is it? I guess by that notion, it's not useful for every drug to do pharmacogenetic uh, testing. Uh, how do we know when to do that?
1: Yeah. So I think the first answer to that really is if you're not sure, it's a good idea to talk to someone who's an expert in this area. So that would either be the laboratory that does the testing, or there's actually a lot of pharmacists now that are becoming very well-versed in pharmacogenomics, so they can be pretty helpful too. But uh, to actually know when that is or isn't, I guess kind of in general terms, there's some drugs that are metabolized by a lot of different enzymes all at once, and so sometimes an impact to one of those enzymes where you have reduced activity might be a little bit less significant for that particular medication. So we like to look at FDA labels because that gives us information about genetics so that you know, oh, this drug is one where we know that there's a specific enzyme or a specific gene that we should be testing. And then other cases there could be guidelines that we could look at. But always referring back to the literature is a really good idea for any particular medication to determine whether there's actually genetic variants that can help predict the how a patient would respond or toxicities
0: i love your answer because i think this really highlights one of the themes that we're really trying to pull out with this podcast and that is just the um you know when you're talking about the frontier of medicine the cutting edge of medicine you're really talking about uh there has to be a lot of communication with experts and i like the fact that you're highlighting it's not just uh, the clinical pathologists but pharmacists are engaged and involved particularly as we're talking about pharmacogenomics it makes perfect sense but that It may not be the first thing that a lot of people in general medical professional life uh, think of. And so I love that we're highlighting that here. Something that kind of strikes me is I'm usually um, watching less commercials these days, (laughs) (laughs) as we all have our various streaming services and more streaming services are coming out every day. But uh, I've I've come across some uh, commercials, uh, I think for genetic testing. I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, that's kind of a new area in genetic testing, really. So instead of the historic model where you've got a specific question or specific problem and you go to your doctor and then they identify the right genetic test for you and order it, the patient can look online, or the consumer in this case, and say, you know what, I really want to get one of these genetic tests. And so you can order one yourself. And it can be anything from something that you normally would have gotten in a doctor's office to, I wonder how I think cilantro tastes. So wait a minute,
0: (laughs) a complete (laughs) blood count. I can't order that myself as as a private citizen, but you're saying that a private citizen could get some genetic testing performed?
1: Yeah, exactly. So sometimes it's truly direct to consumer and that consumer will order it completely independently and it'll come back the results directly to them. And in other cases, they'll order it through a different route where maybe they're ordering it online and it feels like they're the one ordering it, but in the background, there's a medical provider that looks over their application or order and decides that it's appropriate, and then the results come back. But you never know if they're going to get genetic counseling with that or not. It varies by company quite a bit.
0: I imagine you've got a couple of phone calls from people asking, what do I do with this result? Uh, I mean, I guess it's patients that got the, ordered the testing, got the results, took it to their physician, and now their physician, would they call you typically or they sometimes call you about this?
1: They might call us in the laboratory because this is something kind of new. It's not something that most providers trained knowing that a patient might bring a genetic test result with them, but we're seeing it more and more because of some of those services that are out there. So I think most providers kind of know to take it with a big grain of salt if it's some of those entertainment sorts of Uh, phenotypes that it's giving you. So sometimes it'll tell you, oh, your eye color is probably blue. And it doesn't really take a genius to figure out if that really matches up or not. But if they get pharmacogenomic test results back or they get carrier status for hereditary disease or something like that, it's a little bit harder for the provider to know what to do with that. But in general, we recommend that you would repeat that in a clinical laboratory for a variety of different reasons.
0: Okay. And that makes perfect sense that, you know, some kind of point of care assay that maybe is done, maybe to do it in a lab, because I I guess to highlight, there's. could you talk a little bit about the differences between what you're going to do in your lab when you're doing pharmacogenomic testing and what might be available to a uh, patient as a direct-to-consumer?
1: Yeah, so there's actually some pretty striking differences between the direct-to-consumer versions and what we would typically perform in our laboratory. So in the direct-to-consumer world, the ones that are truly direct-to-consumer, the FDA doesn't allow them to report any medications on those reports, so they'll get something like CYP2C9, star 1, star 8, and some sort of metabolizer status, and most patients aren't going to have any idea what to do with that, which That's is probably super good. super helpful. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, you don't really want your patient changing their medication on their own, so it's probably good that it doesn't really give them much more information than that. But the other category where the patient can order the test and then there's an intermediary provider, sometimes those have come with medication results. And in that case, it's really important for the patients or the consumers to be aware that they really need to go talk to their provider about those results. So in contrast, when our laboratory does testing, I guess the other thing I should have mentioned is that a lot of those other tests have very limited alleles that they can detect. So they might only be able to detect three different genetic variants, versus a test performed in a different clinical lab might be able to detect 10, 15, 20 variants for that particular gene. So they tend to be a little bit less sophisticated, a little bit more likely to give false negative results. But at any rate, back to our own testing, we do include many different alleles that should be useful for a wide variety of ethnic groups because some of these alleles have different frequencies and different ethnicities. And then we do provide more information about medications and what that result means that hopefully will help both the provider and the patient who is meeting with their provider to go over the results.
0: It's interesting. It makes me curious. Does that mean, um, if I read into what you're saying, that some of these uh, direct-to-consumer tests that can be done, are they including alleles that are just basically for the white population or are they including ones uh, that are relevant to uh, Latino, African-American, Asian communities?
1: It really depends on the specific test, and so that's something consumers really need to be aware of. So for the true genetic tests that are direct to consumer, for instance, one of them might test BRCA, which is important for risk for breast cancer, and it's important for the consumer to realize that if they are not Ashkenazi Jewish, that test is going to probably be negative for them, so it's really not predictive of their risk unless they happen to be Ashkenazi Jewish.
0: Not predictive, not informative in any way. Yeah, exactly,
1: so you have to be really careful with what exactly that test is doing.
0: Wow, buyer beware, and I guess it just, again, highlights the importance of uh, communication and talking with various professionals to understand, you know, is this something that would be helpful for our patients? I was wondering if we could transition a little bit. And I, I mean, you, you mentioned kind of about a test that could tell you eye color and stuff like that. I mean, since we're in the new year, uh, I'm, I'm a medical professional, but uh, I'm not the expert in this uh, area. I'm grateful that you are. Uh, how about the testing? I mean, is there genetic testing I can do that can talk about like what kind of diet I should follow, what kind of exercise, that kind of thing?
1: Well, there certainly are tests that are out there, and you could definitely find them on the internet and buy them. But what you want to actually do with the results is a little bit less clear. So in those cases, I'm not entirely sure what exactly some of those companies are basing their testing on, because if you try to go back again to the literature, which is the source of most medical information you don't really find very much about genetics that would be very predictive of what diet's going to be most healthy for you or what exercise you should be doing to lose weight or even the one that I've seen recently, what wine you might enjoy. (laughs) So I think a lot of these companies, I mean, okay, they could be doing their own research in the background, but otherwise I think they're extrapolating a lot off of probably some limited data. And if you ordered several of these tests that are supposed to give you some sort of similar piece of information from several different companies, I'm not entirely sure how similar your results would be from one test to the next.
0: Wow, Dr. Moyer, I mean, maybe you can uh, put the sommeliers out of business in the future. (laughs) (laughs) A new service uh, from your reference laboratory, huh?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think we're ready to start offering tests for what exercise you should be doing or what your diet should be or what wine you would enjoy quite yet in the clinical side. For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education.
0: as this is evolving this is evolving i think what you're pointing out is it's evolving because of what we're learning about epidemiology and the connections between people's uh behaviors what they're doing what their genetics are and then as we're learning their medical outcomes and that's how these tests are becoming valuable and we're learning what allele is associated with what outcome and what medical context and i can see that this is always evolving and always um you know new alleles to include or not include i mean are we really is the future state just like i'm gonna go and get myself uh sequenced uh, soup to nuts the whole thing <laughs> and it's just gonna i'm gonna do one test and it's gonna be then in my medical record and then just as we evolve to understand what alleles we're looking for it then i'm gonna be paying somebody as a consultant to look at my genome is
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I don't think we entirely know what the future state will really look like at this point. But I would say, throughout my career thus far, people have been talking about, oh, yeah, everyone's going to get their genome sequenced pretty soon. We're going to put that in the electronic medical record and just keep referring back to it. But there's a few caveats to that. So, one thing is a lot of times, if you do someone's genome sequence today and you waited a while and you did it later, the tests are getting better and better over time, and they're getting less expensive, too. So whether you wanted to get a test done now for genetics in general or a test later, uh, it might depend on when you actually think you're going to need to use the results. But then number two, if we did a genome on everybody, especially if you're healthy right now, there's a lot of data that you're going to be generating that we really just don't know what to do with, which that seems fine if you're going to keep referring back to that same data. But it's a little bit tricky because if you put it into the EHR where the providers are going to be seeing it, they're not going to know what to do with all those A's, G's, T's, and C's. And then when the laboratory needs to help evaluate it, you might have to transfer that data back and forth, or it might need to be stored in two places. So it might be easier to just put the interpreted results into the EHR at this point in time. And I guess in the future, we'll see about the costs of testing versus the costs of storage. Because you never know, maybe it's going to be less expensive just to do the test again when you need the results instead of storing that data forever, or maybe it really will be less expensive to store the data and keep referring back to the results. So I think we'll have to see.
0: One of the things you you mentioned earlier, early in in your answer just there, and uh, I mean, my mind is just picking on it a little bit, is, is you mentioned that over time, the quality of our genetic testing is getting better. And my mind is just gnawing at that because like (laughs) in some sense, I can understand testing getting better over time. That (laughs) makes perfect sense. But my genome is just my genome, right? If I do it and... it's done right, I mean, it's not changing over time. I was wondering if you could kind of explain maybe a little bit what you mean by the test is getting better over time.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really common question that we get. So that's true. Your genome should pretty much, for the most part, be your genome over time, barring some potential mutations that come up from environmental causes and whatnot over your lifetime. Hey, I wear my
0: sunscreen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) But at any rate, the testing technology is really changing. So previously, we were doing targeted genotyping, looking for very specific variants. And if it's not included in your, your test, you just don't detect it. And then we've moved on to exomes. And in that case, we're getting the coding regions, but we're missing all of those non-coding regions. And then now we're starting to get into the territory of genomes, and you would think, oh, that's going to cover all of the A's, G's, and T's, and C's in my entire genome, right? But there's still, because of the technology we use, we use short reads. So that means we're getting maybe 150 base pairs at a time. And some areas of the genome are very repetitive or very similar to other areas of the genome, and they can be really difficult to actually get that data. And some of that's not something that would be clinically significant, but some of it really is. So you could potentially be missing some important genes with today's technology that over time as we get to longer reads, we might be able to do better with some of that sequencing.
0: I see. So when we're talking about this, I guess when we're talking about You know, to do sequence my genome, maybe I should be using finger quotes when I say that, because like you're saying, over time, we're learning that we actually need to sequence more of the genome than what we had been doing originally, where coverage is continuing to increase. And then with that coverage, you're saying that there's difficult problems that come up about not getting lost or turned around in all the data. And that's what's improving on over time is our, our analytical uh, capacity. Yes,
1: yeah, so it's both the technical side of actually being able to get all of the sequence and not having holes in it. Also, uh, being able to do copy numbers. So whether you've got genes or parts of genes duplicated or deleted, and just a lot of those things are getting better and better, as well as the actual interpretations and the science behind it and the knowledge behind the interpretations.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit, because uh, I think for our um, non-laboratory medical professionals that are, that are listening to this podcast, uh, they probably see the lab, your genetic uh, lab, uh, as this black box yep. <laughs> that stuff goes into. and. You know at at some point an answer comes out and i was wondering if you could kind of uh, put some light on inside that black box for us
1: yeah i absolutely love telling people about how everything works in the laboratory so the first step is that the sample has to come into the laboratory and hopefully it'll often come along with a reason for the testing and once that sample arrives there's kind of two things that are going to happen to it First, you have to get the DNA actually out of the sample, but usually at the same time, our genetic counselors in the laboratory are taking a look at that patient's history that came with the sample request, as well as what test was ordered and saying, well, does this really make sense? If it doesn't make sense, they might give the provider that ordered the test a call to see if this is what they really wanted. And if it's not what they really wanted, hopefully figure out what tests they meant to
0: order. Oh, this is making my quality heart go Mm pitter-patter. And the interprofessional communication and the phone call from the lab is really working towards increasing uh, quality for the patient, uh, not trying to jumble up somebody's day. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. So then the next step after that is provided that it really was the order that the provider wanted. We've got the sample in hand. We've extracted the DNA. Then the technologists in the lab will actually set up the test and perform the test. And that's partly a lot of times next generation sequencing. But in addition, because there are some genes that have tricky areas or some genes that just don't work that way, we might do some supplemental analyses. So it could be some Sanger sequencing or some other technique to supplement the main next generation sequencing. And then once the results are off of the instruments, then the next step is to figure out, well, what do the variants that we identified even mean? Some of them are going to be benign, and we don't even want to tell anyone about them because they're not going to care, and it's not going to help them. And some of them we really need to tell them about and explain what it means. So we have a group of technical specialists that sometimes take the first pass, pulling data about minor allele frequencies of the variants that we've identified and whether they're evolutionarily conserved. And then we also have the genetic counselor team who does a lot of work on looking to see what papers have been published. Are there functional studies that talk about that specific variant? And then at the end of the day, we work together and we put it all together into a report. And then we pass that back off to the ordering provider And depending on what we found, a lot of times we'll just send out the report and hopefully it speaks for itself. But if we find something a little bit unusual or interesting that we want to follow up on a little bit more, we might give them a call to talk through it in more detail. Or we at that point will wait to see if they call us because they would like to talk about results once they have them in hand.
0: I see so I I can think about this uh, your report very similar like what I'm thinking for anatomic pathology report you might have an above-the-line diagnosis but that there actually is a lot of um, uh, a lot of gems in the comment section of the report that's really that's the pathologist trying to communicate what's the meaning of what's been found
1: absolutely so what I like to I guess uh, compare that to is sometimes if a patient sees their regular medical provider at the end of the day they're going to write up a note about their findings and what they thought was going on with the patient and their plan and our laboratory reports are kind of the same thing that's where we say what we found what we think it means and sometimes we might get into a little bit about what you do about it but oftentimes we leave that to the provider but if they want to talk to us to get more information so that we can work on that together that's something we really enjoy
0: yeah yeah so. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Way to kick off the new year with this podcast. I mean, I'm taking away, you know, how this area has really grown from when I was in medical school. To it's not just about my genome that I was born with, but you know, the tumors, drugs that people are on. So it really is impacting patients in multiple facets. And then I'm also taking away from our conversation the fact that. Uh, This is a very um, dynamic area of medicine that's expanding, and uh, we're getting better each day, both in terms of understanding what it means, as well as, as you pointed out, when we're talking about the quality of the test, we are getting better at finding out what that genome uh, sequence is, and then also what it means.
1: I think it's just a really exciting area to be in, and even if we figure out what the entire genome means, The next step is gonna be figuring out the epigenetics and what the environment does and how that interplays with the, the genome. So I think we've got exciting times ahead in this area.
0: Okay, so (laughs) we'll put that on hold till next time. So uh, we'll have an upcoming episode about epigenetics and uh, hold on to your uh, thinking caps for that, everybody. (laughs) We've been rounding with Dr. Moyer about the broad field of molecular genetic pathology. Thank you for taking the time to discuss this topic with us. And thank you to the audience for uh, joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to MC c l education at mayo.edu and reference this podcast if you've enjoyed lab medicine rounds podcast please subscribe until our next rounds together we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations